Hello, welcome to One Decision, the podcast that talks to the decision makers and influencers of today to assess what their consequences may be for tomorrow. We're going back to the Baltics today because of the actions of Parliament in a small European nation that sent shockwaves around the world, causing anger in the heart of Beijing. Matas Maldekis is a lawmaker in Lithuania, where the controversial opening of a de facto embassy to Taiwan last year sparked outrage in China, which sees Taiwan as being part of its territory. Normally, diplomatic outposts to Taiwan are officially named missions to its capital, the city of Taipei. But the Taiwanese representative office in Lithuania, as it is officially named, has angered China, causing it to downgrade their relations with Lithuania and to try and persuade multinational companies to leave the country or else risk losing access to its massive market. Before it opened the embassy, Lithuania had also quit China's 17 plus 1 diplomatic bloc in the EU and encouraged other nations to follow suit. Well, Matas sat down with us earlier and began by explaining why the Lithuanian parliament decided to go ahead with the move and why the tiny island of Taiwan is so important to the Lithuanians that they would risk angering the biggest economy in the world to support it. Uh, I have to start from the beginning. Uh, when we formed the new government, uh, all the three parties, that was conservatives and two liberal parties, they all in the election told that we want to have, have to make the relationship with Taiwan stronger, that there is a field of cooperation and that, that field must be, must be pushed forward. And when we formed the government, we we did what we supposed to do and what we told in the election process. We uh, got into the contact with them. We talked to them that we want to have office opened in Lithuania and we want to open, uh, open the office in Taiwan of ourselves because we want a strong economical ties, uh, better cooperation in economical field, in culture field, in science field, etc. And uh, there was a discussion. They asked uh, if there would be possibility to call it Taiwanese office because in Taiwan, uh, Taiwanese live. So we called it Taiwanese office and that's it. There, there was no break of one China policy or something what China is telling. That was uh, our decision and we went with that. We didn't break any laws in, in that regard. That's, that's interesting that you say that there was no break of the one China policy. So you see this, um, do, do you see this as Beijing overreacting to the renaming of the mission? Yeah, the, the story is as it is. After we made our decision uh, in the beginning of December, uh, China uh, blocked all our, you know, commercial types uh, with between Lithuania and China because we are setting an example, showing that we are not afraid. And China wanted somebody to punish to show that, you know, if you will have your own opinion on China, on relationship to uh, how you are dealing in a in a format of European Union, because seventy plus one, if you know the format, was about breaking European Union in regards to China. We said we need to speak in the voice of 27 plus one. That means all European Union. So that was one thing that that triggered them. Second was they saw the opinion of Europeans going very negative on China. So they wanted to show what will happen 
if if those countries politician we have their own opinion on china the third one is you know about uniqueness of lithuania lithuania was one of the factors that triggered the fall of soviet union uh, i know if uh, i don't know if your listeners know much about this fall of soviet union so we was Lithuania, we was the first that declared our independence from that. We never, uh, we never said that we belong to Soviet Union. We was always apart. We was, we was telling that we was annexed, not create, not not went there with our free will. And when we saw Perestroika, we saw the first chance to get out of Soviet Union. We did. And uh, in China, they study the fall of Soviet Union very closely. In universities, etc., for them it's very interesting topic to understand why Soviet Union fought. And when they see the Lithuanian factor in that, they of course understand that no, that triggered them a little bit. That's that's so interesting um, that you bring in the Chinese studying the fall of the Soviet Union and your feelings that Lithuania is particularly in the crosshairs. Do you feel as a small Baltic state, the first to declare independence from the Soviet Union, a, a huge imperial power at the time, do you is that perhaps the the sort of the the, the route for your camaraderie or, or your friendship with Taiwan? I mean, do you see each other as sort of kindred spirits, as it were? Exactly. For Lithuania, if you would come to Lithuania, uh, to Vilnius, uh, in all Lithuania cities, you will find in all bigger Lithuania cities, you will find a square of Tibet. We we feel, we understand, we are always in support of little nations that fight for their freedom because we did ourselves and it was very and this uh, feeling of justice of being right being small but being right in uh, in the eyes of you know big dictatorship especially if it is communist because we are very vaccinated against that uh, from the soviet times it it uh, we are always standing against that in any form. And we was real supporters of Tibet. And now in the sense we see Taiwan, we have a lot of forums, we have a lot of uh, people who support Taiwan in a sense, never been there, no, not very much about that, but that romantic view on Taiwan, we have the same as on Tibet, you know, the earlier Tibet, everybody knows, uh, everybody is looking to that and is very supportive in that because they see that as a struggle against big communist regime. Um, there, there seem to be some pretty bizarre consequences of this. I mean, you mentioned the, the blocking of the trade. Um, I, yeah. I was very tickled to read that Taiwan reportedly bought 20,000 bottles of rum from Lithuania after it was blocked by the Chinese and they were having yeah. to share tips with the public on how to cook and drink with it. Uh, but on a serious note, the Taiwanese, they're clearly extremely bent, the Taiwanese are, are, on solidifying relationships with Vilnius and they've announced that they were setting up this $1 billion fund uh, for yeah. joint Lithuanian-Taiwanese investment to try and support the country as it fends off punishment by China. Um, Matasa, I wanted to ask, is, 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 that, is that enough? I mean... 
Taiwan is is a really tiny country, and and while it does punch above its weight in trade, very much so, it's it's really nothing、yeah. compared to Beijing. Is it worth it?、Uh, what the war in Ukraine shows that、uh, you know is sometimes it's not about the cost, but about the principles, and in the long run, it's about how much you pay for your freedom. Uh, first,、uh, regarding our relationship with China in a trade,、uh, it was very small numbers.、Uh, we was in the, we was much bigger investor in China than China was in Lithuania.、Uh, like like it's always happened. Our trade with China was to, we exported to China for two hundred million euros a year, and and Chinese exported to Lithuania more over more of a、uh, one billion. So it was. Ours、uh, to、uh, it was minus to our side. What happened in China about five or six years ago? We really wanted our port, Klaipeda. Klaipeda is jewel of the Baltic Baltic Sea, and we really wanted that. And we, because of national security questions, didn't solve that. So from that time, China was closed for us. More or less, it was closed closed deal for us. And、uh, so it was. We didn't have so much trade and so not so much investment, and that's good, of course. So it was not so painful in in a sense. We was vaccinated. Regarding the Taiwan, we understand that、uh, we see new new reality in relationship with China, in relationship with with Russia. What COVID did and what is uh, uh, war in Ukraine is doing? It is just accelerating the history, the turn of history. And what we will see that authoritarian regime like Chinese, they will be closing down. They will be closing down. That means that a lot of business will go, will be going out of China. And one of those businesses is Taiwan business.、Uh, they will be going out, and、uh, we want to be one of opportunities for them to invest in Europe. And we see ourselves as opportunity for Taiwanese business as as for European market. We are really cooperating and finding,、uh, trying to find, and I think we will have good,、uh, good, good decisions here and very interesting news about our cooperation in semiconductors business because semiconductors is very important, especially for European Union.、Uh, so there is a lot of, you know,、uh, there, there is a lot of perspective, and、uh, we working very closely on,、uh, with Taiwan on that. And I think it won't be long that we will have like win-win situation between us and Taiwan. What happened? We learned that from Russia's story, and、uh, now what happened is we、uh, we cut our ties with Russia long ago. I, I so absolutely, know, I absolutely want to get to、uh, talk to you about about Russia,、yeah. but I just, I、yeah. just. So it was an example, and now that happening with China also, mm, yeah. Mm. Right, we'll definitely get to. I do. You said something interesting though. You said、uh, China wanted Klaipeda, your your port,、yeah. um, in into the Baltic Sea. What do you mean by that? They wanted it. They wanted to do what with it? Yeah, they they wanted to buy our Klaipeda port. It's the port that doesn't frozen does doesn't become frozen on winters, so it's very good for transportation. So what China was doing, they was、uh, manufacturing, started to manufacture and building a lot of factories in Belarus, near our border, near Lithuanian border, and they wanted a Klaipeda to to be the port that those those items from Belarus. Near near Lithuanian border, from that economical zone, they will be getting to 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 Klaipeda and from that to European Union. 
it 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 should be, if they wanted to make a very strategical you know uh, logistical uh, item for the for 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 the whole one road one bell initiative it was very important for them yeah it it's also interesting to hear of this chinese belarusian russian uh solidification happening on your board and I definitely want to ask yeah. you that but b- before I before I turn to Russia which I will uh, just a couple more I just wanted to ask you um, shortly after opening the the embassy to Taiwan you led a delegation to the island last yeah. year how how did you find it what did you learn on that trip uh, what was the most fascinating for me is the people's view is the people's view and the people's the people's feeling of wanting to be recognized and understood. You know, you see, it is very, very interesting with a a country with a big culture, with a big technologies and everything, 20th century, absolutely country. But in a sense, what I felt the most, what touched me the most is the feeling of them wanting to be understood, to be heard and to be, you know, they live near the big, big neighbor, let's call it. And we lived near the big neighbor, <laughs> uh, so so it there was a lot uh, a lot of similarities. And when uh, talking with them, I understand uh, I understood how they felt. It was like us after the fall of Soviet Union when we declared our independence, and we wasn't very much heard. Everybody was playing, you know, Western countries. They was playing geopolitics because they want Gorbachev to stay because they was fighting hardliners. And Lithuania declares its independence, and it's like everybody is like, like, Shh, you Lithuanians are hot tempered. You know, we have big deals here, and we really wanted to be heard. And the small country of Iceland was the first to declare and recognize our independence. It was very, very, very big deal for us. You know, we was counting, and we still love Iceland because they was the first. We always remember the first. Fair, fair. I'd like I'd like to turn, if if I may, now to the the, the current situation yeah. with Ukraine, because yeah. Lithuania has has skin in in this game. Uh, as as we've talked about, it was one of the three small Baltic states and NATO members that spent half of the twentieth century under Soviet rule. Uh, just something that is interesting. We spoke to Tavi Roivas recently, and he. Uh, he sharply rebuked me for referring to Estonia as an as an FSU country. He said, "No, no, no. We were never Soviet Union. We were occupied." And I and I think you've used a yeah. similar a similar phrase. You were annexed. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. So and, and there was that extremely ominous warning from the Ukrainian president Zelensky recently. Uh, he said, "If we are no more, then God forbid, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia will be next." So, Matas, how worried is Lithuania about the current war in Ukraine and the current volatility? The first, first, days, first day, it, everybody was, I have to admit, afraid because they understand that if those guys eat, eat Ukraine in, you know, like, say, a week, a month, so that means it's a question of time because they have, there is a fascist rule there, you have to understand. I won't lie to you. There is a fascist rule, and uh, you you never can stop. You never can stop. You have to expand and expand because you feel the blood, and you have to expand to 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 more. And we understood that. From what we see now, is that they want uh, they they want it Ukraine. Uh, he will get stuck 
in uh, there might you know he might even take some cities he might even take take uh, declare military military uh, it we will see how it all goes but uh, it's his dead end but are you feeling so we, reassured uh, by yeah. by the fact that the the invasion into ukraine is is playing out quite badly for the russians yeah because we we see how they are operating we see that they are you know uh what what it showed you know when you talk about russia we started looking from our point of view and what we are seeing now in ukraine that it's like it's always been russia always been and always will be in a form that it is a potomkin village that this is the paradox of russia you know i you said that russia is like a potomkin village um Yeah. What, what in what sense are you what, do you do you mean that the military has this facade of being a huge power and yeah, actually it's just a chaotic true. mess of of disparate parts or, or do you mean that that Putin is not the head of a unified country as he makes out to be what what exactly did you mean by that? In, in, in all the senses why Soviet Union collapsed well, one of the main reasons why Soviet Union collapsed was because people didn't believe the pro- uh, they, they didn't believe what we was doing everybody know knew that they was going to walk they was pretending to be communist but so it was a potomkin village but everybody was talking oh everything is going great everything is going like five years to the communism we will beat the west they are dying we are becoming strong and and after that everybody was going to shops trying to buy jeans and staying in a you know to buy sugar and uh, and try to buy sugar you have to stay in a in a in a you know uh, five five hour uh, line you know so everybody understood that they are lying i i'd like to get your viewpoint um because you know you are you're you're very connected to russian society as in you you know you share a border i'm sure you have a lot of families who have family members on on both sides of the border from your perspective and from your viewpoint one thing that i think has been really interesting recently is at the start of the ukraine invasion a lot of people were questioning whether putin would have the russian people the russian people's support in yeah. invading ukraine given that there there is so much shared history and and common ties between the two countries but recently yeah. we've been hearing interviews with with people uh Ukrainian people who have Russian family members and and interviews from people inside Russia that actually the message being spread from state propaganda in Russia is is bleeding through a lot of Russians support Putin they see the war as legitimate yeah. uh they don't believe what what the Ukrainians and what the west is saying about civilian casualties they believe that the Russians have a legitimate goal um they believe that there yeah. are Nazis in power in Ukraine uh, Uh, how how have you found the, those headlines? Do you do you think that's accurate? Yes, of course. It's popular war. Russians love it. We you, we should stop lying to ourselves. Russians love it, and uh, it's not about propaganda. Russia propaganda is not so strong. If you look at Russia propaganda for their own people, when there was COVID crisis, uh, nobody get, went to vaccinate with Russian vaccine. Nobody believed their own propaganda. So that shows that their own propaganda doesn't work. It's not about propaganda as it is. We want to lie to ourselves and be feeling, oh, those people are just lied to, but they 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 are good people. No, it's about 1938 in Germany. You have to understand the mood there. 
Nazis, when they come, uh, they need six years to, to re reprogram the, the Germans who was very cultural, who was very first society in European, in, in Europe then. After six years, they was reprogrammed to go to wars with everybody. They was, you know, they, they become very Nazi society. Russians have this feeling for uh, 300 years. It is called New Rome, uh, Third Rome uh, theory they have. Third Rome theory. They think that third, they are the third Rome. First was Rome, then it was Constantinople, and now it's Moscow. It's like legitimizing their own view on being on the right side of history and doing everything from the just, because justice is on their side because we have a third Rome. And uh, what what is happening? What they they have very what that means? They are very messianistic in a the world. They are fighting not Ukrainians. They are fighting fascists. They are fighting Western style of life in a sense. Because what is fascism for them? Fascism for them is a Western style of life, being free, like human rights, gays rights. What it is? They 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 hate that. Because for them, it's about being free. They are not free from their own. They are not being, they, they live in not free society and they are not being free. And they don't like seeing the West being free. They, this is where it comes from. And they, it's envy that comes from. And you want to beat that free person who lives in your neighborhood because somehow he became free and you don't want him to be, be free. You don't want him, he, you want him, you want him to be like you, you know, this is where it's come from. So that sounds like a, is, is to, I mean, to me, that sounds like a very extremist view. Do you really believe that that is a majority held view in Russia or is it a certain demographic? Is it perhaps the older people no. who are less, uh, less taken up with, you know, freedoms of the internet and and less plugged into how how life and, and liberal life abroad is compared to how life now is in Russia? Uh, if you take Moscow, Moscow is a different different story. What, what, what do I mean? If you take Russians, about only 15% of them have a passport uh, to go out abroad. 85% of Russians never been abroad and is not planning to. All they're seeing, like, they see Russia, uh, uh, that's it. They see the perception of the West and it was told from their kindergarten, like, you know, the West is bad, they are corrupt, they are like free in a sense of, you know, anarchy and, and, and in a sense, they, they don't see the perception of the West. People in Moscow, yes, a lot of them been to, to Europe, a lot of them been to Turkey for the holidays and everything. They see different Europe. They are rich enough to travel and they see different Europe, they understand the world differently. But the, the problem is, so a lot of them now is, uh, is migrating. The trains to Finland is full of engineers, uh, IT guys and everybody, everybody who understands like, you know, what is going on in reality, they are, they are fleeing, they are, they are running away. There is of course a lot of people like this. But when I'm talking about the community, when I'm talking about Russia, and I'm talking about you know deep society, if you can uh, like like that Russian mentality and their understanding of the world as the the bigger part and all, uh, it's uh, it's every very different. If 
if you talk with them, you wouldn't believe how like how they see the world. There is a threat that is threatening our good, sacred Russia. And that threat is West, NATO and everybody and the United States and all this bad, uh, bad West. That, that's that's, uh, and that's really interesting. And, and my, my, my uh, a question that that leads on to that is then what what then happens uh, to that viewpoint? How does that viewpoint get challenged when uh, when we see a, a growing cost of living crisis in Russia and these extremely painful bitter uh, economic punitive measures start to bite will they continue to see the bad guy as you know it's the west ganging up on us or are they going to start questioning the decisions of their administration uh, refrigerator against television is very good uh, i i call it this way uh, refrigerator must win against television of course it's uh, it's uh, the, the sanctions have to work but uh, only one thing that vaccinates Russia, uh, it's uh, the lost in war. If they will lost, lose the war on Ukraine, that means the end of the empire as we know it, that was built for 700 years. That means they are not the strongest in the, you know, right here. And that means that the Kremlin loses its legitimacy in the eyes of Russians. This is why we have to understand the stakes. Putin can't lose this war. This is the biggest problem because Putin can't lose this war because it's it's not about only Putin. It's not about only Kremlin. It's about Russian empire as it is. If they fall to Ukraine, that means the end of Russian empire in a sense. And that means the new structure of the, there will be a lot of, you know, fights inside. There will be a civil war in Russia. Uh, I'm not like exaggerating. It it, it means civil war there. Uh, question is uh, m- maybe not military, but in a sense that with civil war between a lot of groups, and the, it 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 means new Russia, new Russia in all the in all the in all the sense. And uh, now Kremlin can 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 do that. He doesn't imagine losing that. We understand the stakes. Matas Maldek is speaking to us earlier there. My co-host Sir Richard Dearlove joins us now for his analysis. First, I asked him what he made of Maldekis' claim that the Chinese make a point of extensively studying the fall of the Soviet Union. I think the way I would describe it is that Lithuania is something of a bellwether. I think that's such a wonderful phrase, bellwether. Um, And, you know, it's a small, vulnerable country that sits on the edge, you know, of, of... a relatively mighty and oppressive power, which has given historically it a very complex history. And, you know, Lithuania is very, very sensitive as a small nation to being, you know, bullied, oppressed, occupied, you know, obviously mainly by Russia. But I I thought this whole business of the way it was treated by China was, was absolutely fascinating. And I'm sure that, you know, they have, looked very closely and carefully at, you know, why the Soviet Union was a failed empire and why it's in, as it were, a period of post-imperial decline. Um, and it would be... Typical. I mean, does Beijing see itself as the seat of an imperial power? Is, is she building an empire? Um, 
Yes, I think in the, well, I, I think his vision is, is, is he's not building an empire, you know, with colonies, but he's building an empire with economically dependent states, if you see what I mean. So the Chinese would, would rationalize it differently because they will, they, they will look at their economic weight. And, you know, the expression of this, I think, at the moment is through what's called Belt and Road. Um, and, you know, their attempt to indebt and dominate vulnerable economies and to make them, you know, dependent on the Chinese market, not necessarily dependent politically, but of course, to, as it were, exercise huge pressure through the weight of their economic and financial influence. Something that I find really interesting about about the way Beijing tries to assert itself with other countries and all of the lengths that it that it goes to in order to build upon its influence to to be able to force nations it trades with to comply to be culturally sensitive to its narrative to never speak out about the Uyghurs and about Xinjiang about its about its its various policies it want it it wants to be able to to have the economic clout to that that means it is it it is so detrimental for other countries to criticize it and to speak out about it in order that it maintains its control on its own population right i mean it is a country of more than a billion people is all of this aggressive expansion and its desire to influence and intimidate other countries more so about keeping its own population un under its own, un, under in check and it sees that the possible influence of other nations is an existential crisis to the CCP maintaining its grip on its own domestic population yeah that's a fascinating question and I think actually a really important question because there's no question that what the Chinese worry about is loss of control in their own enormous and complex polity. And what I'm talking about is within China. And what we do know about the Chinese leadership is that on an almost daily basis, maybe not quite that frequently, the first thing that happens, you know, within the government compound of an early morning is to review what's happened in China within the last 24 hours with the principal emphasis on the maintenance of security and whether there have been any incidents which, as it were, threaten the authority of the party, the authority of the central government. And I think you are correct in a way, and this is extrapolated into their international relationships and the fact that they absolutely, you know, are super sensitive about, you know, being criticised for the way that they treat their own population or, for example, the treatment of the Uyghurs being the most 
a topical example of an attempt to sort of re-educate and to reshape a significant ethnic minority, which, you know, is within China and, you know, to show the dominance of Han Chinese culture. But I think in a way, the issue you've asked me about is almost best expressed by the security situation in Hong Kong, because I think what the Chinese have been terrified about in relation to Hong Kong is the fact that it's possible that you know Hong Kong would inject the sort of democratic virus backwards into China. Because what I think surprised the Chinese leadership over Hong Kong is that the student demonstrations seem to indicate that you know young Chinese in Hong Kong did not have an enthusiasm for Chinese leadership. They had an enthusiasm for the traditions of democracy that the British had left behind. And I mean, that was, you know, a very sort of potent street movement. And I think the Chinese were terrified that the, the Hong Kong democratic virus would infect the, the part of China immediately around Hong Kong. And I mean, this, I think, is at the basis of the communist, Chinese Communist Party leadership's neurosis about losing control of this very uh, complex and socially volatile country. And we've just had a recent example, which was briefly on the internet and then massively uh, suppressed, uh, which was the population, well, people in Shanghai objecting to aspects of the lockdown. And I think this is typical. I think a, a lot happens in China on a daily basis, particularly on social and labor issues that we don't see, we don't know about, and is successfully suppressed. But there is a volatility about you know daily life in China, which you know, it's, we're not exposed to, we, we, you know, because it's sort of covered up. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Going back to Matas Maldekis, something that I found so interesting was this this friendship between Lithuania and Taiwan that I wasn't, aw- wasn't really aware of before this interview. Maldekis said that in all Lithuanian cities, you'll find a street or a road or, or a square or something that is named after Tibet. And it, it reminded me of the connection actually between Israel and Singapore, um, where I grew up. The Israelis, they've got so many ties to this tiny island nation of Singapore, really close military ties. And after independence, the IDF, the Israeli Defence Force, has actually helped to create the Singaporean National Defence Force. And there's there's a really strong bilateral tech and arms trade. And... And it's believed that one of the main reasons for that is that the Israelis see this tiny island of Singapore surrounded by its huge Muslim neighbours, Malaysia and Indonesia. And uh, and it feels a strong sense of kinsmanship because of it. And he, he also told me something that I wasn't aware of, which was Iceland's role in, in recognising and supporting their break from the FSU. Uh, he's, I think he said it was a really big deal for us. And we still love Iceland because they were the first. We always remember they were the first to, to back us. And I wanted to ask you, because... We talk so much these days about the big rivalries between superpowers, the US versus China, and we talk about other heavy players like Russia and the EU. 
Are we missing a trick by not paying attention to the smaller countries and the very many uh, important and strong alliances they can and do form? Yeah, well, that's a very interesting question. And I think particularly interesting in relation to Singapore, which, of course, you know, is a sort of modern day Venice. It's a city state um, of great reach, of great influence, of economic power, and of course, strategically vulnerable and therefore very, very keen, you know, to build around itself a security curtain which you know for a small city state is both sophisticated and efficient and i'm certainly aware uh, as uh, as you've mentioned that you know the the alliance between israel and singapore has been very close and i think that the israelis have brought a lot of benefit to singapore in that respect um i mean in a way you know I wouldn't necessarily put Lithuania yet into that category, but I mean, what's interesting about the Baltic republics is they have developed very sort of sophisticated forms of IT government because they're small and almost operate like a laboratory and therefore have developed very, very quickly in, in a number of high-tech areas. It's extraordinary what they've achieved. And, and all the three Baltic republics have, you know, managed, I mean, despite having this significant sort of Russian-speaking implant in their population, you know, they've developed very fast, very far, very quickly. And, of course, they've been fierce about maintaining their independence. Um I mean, interestingly, I, I, I wasn't aware of what you had mentioned about Iceland. Um, I mean, I take a particular interest in Iceland because my, my wife is born in, in Reykjavik and her mother was Icelandic. <laughs> and therefore, our family, you know, we feel very strong sort of emotional link through my wife's family with, with, with Iceland. Um, and very strong knitting tradition in Iceland as well, of course. Very strong knitting tradition. That's absolutely <laughs> true. And of course, my daughter's a knitter. <laughs> yes. A professional knitter, I should say. No, she's a, you know she is a professional expert knitter. Um, but I mean, what's the incredible about Iceland? Um, you know, which really is a tiny nation. I mean, it is so small. But on the other hand, it does define itself. Um, strategically, because of its geopolitical position, uh, you know, which is rather crucial. But more than that, you know, it defines itself as uh, socially as as very advanced and 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 and, and, and very liberal, but politically uh, heavily engaged in the geopolitics of Scandinavia. So that link between um, Iceland and the Baltic republics, I think, is, is seminal and, and, and psychologically very, very important. And of course, you know, Iceland uh, is an important member of NATO, not, not because of its contribution, because it doesn't make a contribution effectively, it's so tiny. I mean, it makes a tiny, tiny contribution, but it's geopolitics, it's place where it is, and the importance of you know it being within it, 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 in in the sort of NATO brotherhood. It was founding member of NATO, wasn't it? 
Yeah, it is. And of course, originally, you know, there was this massive US base there at Keflavik, um, out just on the edge of, of, of Reykjavik, about 10 or 15 miles down the coast. From But of that, that base now has closed. But of course, it's still geopolitically because it's positioned very, very important. And I mean, if there was a, you know, return to, um, you know, strong Cold War tensions, I, I, I'm sure that that base would, would be re-established or would reopen. I wanted to ask... Um, he, he said something very interesting. He made this claim that Russia was basically a Potemkin village, uh, that the, the Russian propaganda wasn't very effective. He gave this example of how there was the low take up of the Sputnik vaccine. Uh, he's arguing that Putin is projecting a vision of strength and power and national unity that isn't really there. What did you make of that claim? Well... To an extent, I agree with what he's saying. Uh, but I mean, on the other hand, that's in a way what the Lithuanians would say about Russia in its current state. So, I, I mean, I'm, but I, I think that in essence, he's, he, he's probably correct because, you know, what we clearly have uh, in Russia is, uh, well, a, a severe case of post-imperial anxiety. Um, a very, very severe case. And, you know, Russia is in serious decline. I think that's the way I would express it. Um, and, you know, the loss of Ukraine as part of the Russian sphere of influence is, you know, it, it is and would be, you know, a very, very serious blow. For, for Russia, both economically, politically, and culturally. So for them, you know, this is a sort of final cast of the dice. I mean, I've, I think I've said to you before, you know, Russia's population in the last 18 months declined by a million. You know, its GDP is somewhere between, you know, around Italy's. Um, it, you know, it, 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 it's, 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 it's loss of influence in terms of the countries traditionally on its periphery, which were part of sort of the Russian polity. Uh, I mean, you can, you know, the, the, the Soviet Union has gone and it's not going to be recreated, however hard that Russia tries and however violently it continues to try. That brain drain that you mentioned, uh, you know, the, the that that decreasing of the population by a million people. And Matas Maldekis mentioned that as well. He said a lot of globally minded Russians who are IT specialists, engineers, scientists, lawyers, people with skills and expertise and an openness to cooperation, they are leaving Russia in droves. What is the effect of this going to be on Russia and its politics? Is this maybe a good thing for Putin that the kinds of voices who would make up uh, an opposition to him are now actually leaving Russia and and those that are left are pro-Kremlin? Well, obviously, that's to Putin's advantage in the short term. I think the way that I would see it is that you know, you've got these groups that are leaving across the Finnish border. I saw something the other day, a significant number of, you know, able Russians, particularly, you know, millenniums, 
going to Turkey to live in Istanbul and Ankara, Istanbul primarily. Um, you know, I think that they're, they're going to sit it out and wait for a change of regime. Um, and there will be a change of regime in Russia, whatever. I mean, it, 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 it may not happen quickly, but it will definitely happen. And, you know, when it does happen, maybe we will have a more normal Russia and these people will go back. Um, you know, this it's, it's an intriguing question. Um, you know, the, the, the exodus of the Russian aristocracy after the Russian Revolution, for obvious reasons, didn't go back. Um, but I think that the, the politics of, of, of Russia are, are volatile. Look at um, Putin's problems with Navalny. Uh, obviously, you don't lock up someone like Navalny unless you're terrified of his potential to win significant political support if, if, if he had a, as it were, free hand to campaign. So, I mean, I, I do think that there is a fragility about the the, 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 the ruling clique in the Kremlin. So Maldek has had this really interesting um, uh, theory that he brought up, which was the third Rome theory, this this idea that Moscow is the successor of the Roman Empire. Uh, is, is that really what is going on in Putin's mind, that he is the heir to Russia's lost Christian Tsardom? Yeah, I mean, I... Uh, uh, well, I think given his crazy decision over Ukraine, it just may be <laughs> <laughs> it just may be one explanation because you you know you don't do so with something so extreme unless you have a really a sort of weird historical vision. The answer is I I, I really don't know, and, and I don't know enough about the internal workings. And I mean the sort of nationalist um, orthodox. Uh, you know, ideology which you know seems to drive the Putin uh, uh, administration. Um, you know, is puzzling, but I mean, it clearly has got significant cultural roots, uh, and uh, you know, is seen by some Russians as a powerful motivator. I mean, I think what's one one of the things which is fascinating is, you know, the expect support for the regime that should come from the Russian Orthodox Church. And I must say that, you know, way, way back when I was visiting Russia and still in my previous career, that the, the presence of the Orthodox Church in relation to the administration was, was very evident. I mean, the first time I went to Russia, we had a banquet and where was it held? It was held in the Danilov Monastery, which is, you know, the home of the Orthodox. You know, it's a bit like the sort of bishopric of Canterbury. <laughs> so the Danilov Monastery is, is seminal to the identity of the Russian Orthodox Church. And it, it was extraordinary to, you know, be going to what was re relatively recently, a, you know, the, the, the leading communist country. And then to find myself invited to dinner in the Danilov Monastery with, with, with a priestly presence at the dinner table. Right. I mean, it just, it just sounded extremely conspiratorial, this idea that Moscow is, is, the, is, the third, is, in, is welcoming, is ushering in this new age of becoming the third Rome. But I mean, 
Is that like, is that fringe or you know, no, is I it think, spiritual? I, or do we think that Putin actually subscribes to this kind of thing? I think he definitely subscribes to it. You know, look, that dinner in the Danilov Monastery maybe was a significant pointer. We were sitting with a bunch of, you know, senior KGB officers who'd all been, you know, in, in office under the communists. They all had orthodox crosses in their buttonholes. I mean, you know, that is not a coincidence. Um, because I think, you know, this is preempting Russia's historical identity. And there is a sort of millennial uh, uh, story, you know, in Russian history. And I think that this is a possible, you know, I don't think this is fanciful at all, actually. I think this is, a, you know, this is, a, this is a very, very possible explanation for why we're in such an extraordinary, you know, series of events as we are at the moment. Russia is in danger of sinking, you know, from having been a, you know, a primary power, both Asian and European for, for, for a long period of time, it, it, it's in danger of losing that, that role. And, and I think that the whole presentation, you know, to the Russian population, particularly using the Orthodox Church, this is, you know, we're defending Christian values, you know, the, 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 the West is corrupt and dissolute. I mean, all of this does hang together and gives you a, a, a sort of, you know, ideology to replace the ideology of communism. That's it for this week's episode of One Decision. Don't forget to subscribe if you enjoyed the conversation and get in touch with the team. We're on Twitter at One Decision Pod and on Facebook at One Decision Podcast. From me and the team, see you next time. <laughs>